While you're sitting down, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read uh, as we begin from verses 23 through 31. So Acts 4, 23 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning as we continue looking carefully at God's word. Acts 4, 23. Uh, you remember this uh, picks up at this is the last scene of an episode that begins in Acts chapter three verse one, where Peter and John heal a man born lame. Uh, they do the miracle. Peter testifies. They're arrested, and this is what happens after they're released uh, from being arrested. Acts four verse twenty three. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I have a friend who decided when he was uh, in his senior years of of high school, later years of high school, that he was going to get in shape. So he formulated through careful research a great exercise plan for himself. And he also decided, though, he needed to very carefully monitor what he ate and how and when. Uh, He had a unique strategy for how he was going to control what he ate. Maybe I have mentioned this before. He was taking at the time a class in graphic design, and he was using Photoshop and learning how to use uh, that program. So he went and he took a picture of himself. And he photoshopped his head onto the body that he'd found in a magazine of a muscled athlete posing in the gym. He took that head and he put it on his head and he put it on that body and he took that picture and taped it on his refrigerator. It's a great idea. Every time he was tempted to open the refrigerator and eat something he shouldn't, there was his face on top of his body, his future body the body he was aspiring to and aiming for, the one that he was working hard to attain. Now, uh, you, you probably understand this impulse, right? Having this vision in your mind of the, the future you you want to be. This is what some of your Pinterest pages are about, aren't they? The future house that I want to have. Someday I'm going to have this house and it's going to have this sort of furniture and this sort of windows and this sort of lighting, uh, this is my future glory house. Um, some of you, uh, that's actually uh, the whole model behind uh, most advertising, isn't it? You can be this future happy person that you see in these advertisements if you just 
If you only ate these breakfast sandwiches, you could go to work in perfect weather just like these people. If you only drove this car, you would be that perfect, perfect, perfect person pictured here. Uh, that's why uh, the travel agency that, that is at the mall, why they put outside of the travel agency these beautiful pictures of, of, of sandy beaches and blue skies. You're supposed to picture yourself there and then going to give them all of your money so that you can go there. You understand this impulse of this, of this perfect picture in your mind. Well, uh, I just read for us this morning what is one of the most aspirational texts in the book of Acts. This is a church that is practically perfect as they gather together. This is the church that we want to be. This is the type of church that we want to be. This is the the aspirational picture of a church for us. What I want to do this morning, actually I have a very simple task, is I want to do two things. One, I want to talk about what was true about this church that makes them aspirational. Why would we put this picture on our church refrigerator to look like this congregation? Now, what was true about them? And the second thing that I want to do is I want to talk very briefly about how we get there. What are some of the steps that it would be necessary for us to get to look like this uh, church? And maybe when I'm answering the how question, maybe I'm going to have an opportunity to tell you why we do some of the things that we do when we gather uh, together. So what's true about them that we want to be true about us, and how do we get there? Let's start with the what. Three things that I want you to know that are true about this church. First, this is a church that prays. This is a church that prays. This is actually the central lesson of the whole passage. The whole passage is about this church and how they pray. This is the longest transcript of prayer in the book of Acts. How does the church respond to persecution? They pray. They don't get together with Peter and John. They don't comfort them. They don't try to evaluate what they're doing. They don't try to think about a new strategy so maybe they could avoid persecution. The first thing that happens, Peter and John said, the chief priests told us this. And the church says, well, let's pray. It's their impulse. Uh, It's all the way through the book of Acts. I've said this before. It bears repeating. The church in the book of Acts Praise and praise and praise and praise. In Acts chapter 1, when they are waiting for, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They gather in the upper room and they pray. When they need to replace, in chapter 1, an apostle, what do they do? They pray. In chapter 2, what characterizes this church? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple, and what do they do? They are going there to pray. In Acts chapter 6, prayer is such the priority of the apostles that they need help to administrate the rest of the, the, the ministry that they're involved in because they don't want to give up on praying. In Acts chapter 9, what happens when Saul sees a blinding vision of the Lord Jesus? He prays. What else happens in Acts chapter 9? When Peter wants to raise a woman from the dead, this this great servant that we'll learn about in a few weeks, uh, Tabitha, he prays for her. 
In Acts chapter 10, Paul is in, uh, Peter is in prayer when God gives him a vision of how uh, he's supposed to go and minister to the Gentiles. When he's in prison, Peter, in chapter 12, what does the church do? The church gathers to pray. In chapter 13, P- uh, Paul is commissioned as a missionary where? At a prayer meeting. In Acts chapter 16, when he enters the city to try to share the gospel with the people, where does he go? To a place of prayer. And what else happens in that city when you beat an apostle and you put him in prison, he prays and he sings. In Acts chapter 20, when you're going to see that apostle for the last time, what do you do together as your parting activity? You pray over and over and over again in the book of Acts. This constant impulse. They prayed when they met. They prayed when they parted. They prayed when they had problems. They prayed when they had blessings. They were always speaking to God. This morning we started a Sunday school lesson downstairs for men on the book of James. James, the author of that book, was one of the leaders in the early church. Maybe there's a reason why that church prayed so much. James, as he got older, developed a nickname. His nickname was Old Camel Knees. And the reason they called him Old Camel Knees is because of the, the large calluses that were on his knees because James prayed so much. When the elders are talking about an issue in our, our church, when our elders are talking about an issue in one of our meetings, and uh, somebody says, we're stuck, and someone says, well, let's pray about it right now. We stop in our meetings and we pray. We do it often. The elders are no more, no more like the early Christians than when we are praying together. Your growth group is never more biblical than when you pray together. Your friendship is never more genuine and never more, does not have any more potential for, for a spiritual fruit than when you pray together. Your leadership men in your homes is never more uh, uh, helpful for your children and your wife than when you say, let's pray about this together. Now, I want to ask you a question here. So we think about this one. This, this is the picture on the refrigerator. Um, do you ever have occasion to describe our church to somebody? Maybe somebody new moves into the neighborhood or you have a coworker, and, and you start talking and they, they say, oh, you go to church. What is your church like? What, what do you say in response to that? Sometimes uh, visitors, it doesn't happen quite as much because she's uh, shuffling children around, but when my wife was in the pews, she would sit before the service and, and occasionally visitors would turn to her and she'd say, so what's this church like? Is the preaching any good here? <laughs> That, she says then what Jackie Fry said about the movie Mom's Night Out. I'm not sure I fall asleep most of it, so I don't know. <laughs> now, we go and visit another church when, when we're on vacation. That happens. I, ask my, I always ask my children, what did you notice about that church? What did you like about it? What did you think about it? Uh, we were visiting another church a couple of years ago, and a friend who was with me, uh, we left the service, and he said to me, oh, they pray a lot in that church. We'd been there an hour, I think, and the first, first hour was just praying and, and singing. A lot of praying. I don't know what you, what you say about our church when people ask, but if this is the picture on the refrigerator, uh, then, then we overhear them praying. Let's, let's be a congregation. Let's be a congregation that when people think about us, when people say, oh, those people are grace, let's, let's be a congregation that they say, oh, those people, they pray. 
They pray a lot. Now, second, this is a church not only that prays, this is a church that has a massive view of God. It's a church that has a massive view of God. Now, we learn this as we overhear them uh, praying. Before they ask for anything, before they ever ask for anything, they speak to God about his supremacy, about his greatness. In fact, their requests seem to be shaped by this massive view of God that they have. John Stott says in his evaluation of this passage that, that they identify three things about God. They, they ascribe to God three truths, and then they, they, use, they follow that up with three verbs that, uh, that describe what God does. We'll look at those in a minute. But notice how they begin their prayer. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord. They pray to a God who is sovereign. Isn't it interesting? They had just come from a meeting, Peter and John, where they were told what's what by people who thought they were in charge. And who do they pray to instead? They pray to the sovereign Lord. Uh, This week I listened to a series of uh, sermons from the book of Judges. Jim Lehman, one of our outreach partners when he was at our church picnic uh, in uh, July, recommended that they listen to some sermons that his pastor in Massachusetts had preached the guy's name is Gordon Hugenberger. It's a fine series of sermons. As one of his uh, messages, he, ta- he talked about a, a man who was a member of his church whose name was Austin Cushman, although uh, Hugenberger always called him Captain Cushman. Captain Cushman was a merchant marine. He'd been around the world more times than he could remember. And Captain Cushman uh, became a follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody shared the gospel with him after he had retired, and his life was completely transformed. One of the things that was changed most significantly was his relationship with his wife. If you ask Captain Cushman, Captain Cushman would tell you that his wife had put up with a lot from him. And uh, Christ changed him, and his relationship with his wife changed. As they were getting along in in years, his, his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And on top of that, one day she had just a massive, massive stroke. Uh, Gordon Hugerberger talks about the fact that he, he was in the hospital room one day, uh, this, the day after the stroke had happened. They'd d- done some work, some tests, some evaluations of, of Captain Cushman's wife. And uh, in the room was uh, his wife lying in the bed and Captain Cushman and, and Pastor Hugenberger. And the doctor came in and, and he said, this is, she's not well. The stroke had devastating effects on her. And uh, the prognosis was very grim. And Captain Cushman said in this very gruff voice, he said, young doctor, which uh, Hugenberger said was a compliment and an insult all at the same time. (laughs) Young doctor, there is another doctor in charge, and if he puts his hands on Floss's head, she will be coming home. I don't care what she's condition, condition she is in. She is my wife, and I want her home with me. There is another doctor who is in charge. The chief priests in the Sanhedrin may say, go home and shut up, but there is a sovereign Lord. They pray to the sovereign Lord. Now look what they say about him. First they say about him that he is the God of creation. You're the God of creation. The text says you made, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now why did they start here? What does, what do clouds and birds and mountains 
have to do with the church's witness about Jesus. And this is actually a very Hebraic way of thinking. This is the way the Hebrews would pray. If God is the maker, then he is the ruler. See, they understand sometimes in ways that we don't often the implications of some of the arguments we have about origins. Where did the world come from? If God is the maker, then he is the ruler. The second, he's the God of revelation. He's the God of revelation. It says in verse 25, you spoke. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. This book may have been delivered, portions of it at least, by David through David's mouth. But it is God's book. It is God's word. Now third, he's the God of history. He's the God of history. Verse 28, you decided. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You decided. Now, um, we should spend some time looking at this a, a little bit more here. Um, as as uh, they pray, these early believers quote from Psalm 2. That's where these uh, verses that are this quote are from. I read from Psalm 2 a few minutes ago uh, when we took uh, the Lord's Supper. Psalm 2 was a coronation song. Psalm 2 was a song that was sung in Israel when one of David's descendants was crowned as king. And one of the, the, the uh, arguments of Psalm 2 is that it is foolish to fight against God's king. God has a special relationship with the nation of Israel. He had a special relationship with David and his descendants. And don't fight. It is foolish to fight against God's king. Have you ever seen this happen maybe as as part of your company? Uh, There you are at work. Your boss leaves, so there's a new boss going to come. Who's it going to be? Well, they hire somebody. They put him in the position. uh, He or she is the new manager. And one of your coworkers doesn't like the new boss doesn't think the new boss is competent, doesn't think the new boss knows what he's, what he's doing or is, is sufficiently trained or has, I've been doing this job more than he's been alive and I don't know why they give it to him. And, you know, you've seen that in your company before? Well, what happens when your boss's boss finds out that how your coworker is responding to your boss? If your boss's boss is competent, your boss's boss will come and remind your coworkers who's actually in charge, right? This is what's happening here in Psalm 2. God says, <laughs> you are a fool to oppose the king that I have appointed. Now, these verses have these, these verbs in them, right? Don't they? Verse 25, the nations rage. Uh, that's a word uh, that is used for a horse right at the starting gate. When the horse is ready to, to run the race, the horse is, is, is raging, Um, The peoples are plotting. They're rising up, verse 26. They're banding together. And all of that, all of that is vain. It's for nothing. You might as well try to stop the rain or stop the sun from shining. These verses, this verse uh, takes Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus. As, As I said earlier, actually, the New Testament does this several times, takes Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus. Um, Jesus is God's anointed one. God speaks 1,000 years before Jesus is born about what Jesus is going to be. He's the God of history. 
some to happen to Jesus. And there's all these parallels in the text, right? The nations rage. Verse 27, when it talks about Gentiles, it's the same word as the word nations in verse 25. Um, Then it talks about the peoples. Well, in verse 27, it talks about the peoples. The original is plural, I think, to make the parallel more uh, evident. The peoples of Israel. They're conspiring together, verse 27 says. Well, they plot, in verse 25, against Jesus, the anointed one, in verse 26 and in verse 27. So there's all these parallels between what happens in Psalm 2 and what happened to Jesus. God can declare thousands of years in advance what's going to happen because he is the God of history. Now, we've looked at this passage before as a a crucial verse. I think verse 28 is for helping us put together two of the great mysteries of the Bible, God's sovereignty and human freedom. They're in this passage. This problem doesn't, actually, this passage doesn't solve that mystery. It just tells us that both of them are true. God is sovereign and human beings make free decisions not under compulsion. They did what your will and power had decided beforehand would happen. That word decided beforehand is the word predestined. I think about that, that sentence for a minute. They did what you had decided. That's a phrase, just in a generic sense, that you could apply all over the Bible, right? Noah did what God had decided. Isn't that true? Isn't that what Noah did? Abraham did what God had decided. Many times that's true. But what happened here in Jerusalem is that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people of Israel, they were not doing what God had decided in the same sense as Noah and Abraham, were they? There's no sense in which Noah and or no sense in which Herod and Pontius Pilate are God's obedient, grateful servants trying to do what God wants. Actually they they're, they're doing what they think is best for them. They're doing it in opposition to God. They hate uh, Jesus, God's anointed one. They want to oppose him. In fact, they're going to kill him because they think that's the way to get rid of him. And all along, without compulsion and freely, they are doing what God has decided beforehand should happen. Um, you should wrestle. You should wrestle with this. God is the master of human freedom and human decisions. God's sovereignty working together in this historical event. Some of you may not like this very much, this God decides beforehand what happens. This word predestined. Or even, oh, let's go further, right? The word election. Some of you might not care for that, but remember you can't cut it out from your Bible without cutting out from God's plan for Jesus and the cross. You begin to suck the vitality out of the cross if you deny God's sovereignty. This passage says that Jesus went to the cross because God had predestined it to be so. It's a beautiful word, predestination is. Election is a beautiful word, as long as you understand it the way Paul understood it and the way these early believers understand it. This church has a massive view of God. He's the God of creation. He's the God of revelation. He's the God of history. He spoke and the world came into existence. He's still willing to speak and he writes what he wrote, what he said down for us. And he, he orchestrates 
history. God is, is magnificent. They have this massive view of him. It's, it's good to read this because we live in a world that does not encourage us to have a massive view of God. I think of that, the lines, um, I think it was Isaac Watts who wrote, Am I a soldier of the cross? And one of the lines in one of the, uh, verse 4, I think, uh, Is this cruel world a friend to grace to help me unto God? And the answer is, no, it's not. You don't receive encouragement. Uh, in in your, your, your Facebook post, there'll be no advertisement today telling you how massively awesome God is. Nobody's going to pay for that advertisement, and I'm not sure Facebook would take it. The television shows that you watch uh, today or that you watched yesterday, the fo- football games, don't inculcate in you this massive view of God. You're not going to read a newspaper article today that tells you how massively awesome God is. He's not going to be acknowledged as central in so many of the things that you do. You'll get your bill for your car insurance, and, and it won't say anywhere on there, isn't God awesome, he protected you another month, now pay up for next month, right? It's not going to say that at all. They're, they're not going to, no one is going to encourage you to have this massive view of God in, in 90% of the interactions that you have living this life. Is there a grocery store in America that has a sign that says God waters the earth with bounty and, and, and the furrows and, and provides this wonderful food for us? Is there a grocery store on earth that has that sign anywhere? They just want to direct you to the ho-hos, right? Stop. This is massive view of God. All right, now third, in this picture, we see a church focused on her mission. A church focused on her mission. We notice this in what they prayed for. What did they ask God to do? They asked for three things. They first asked God to notice. Notice the threats. Pay attention, God. Hear us. See what has happened. Secondly, and most importantly, they pray for boldness. They pray for boldness. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And third, I'm not sure if this is a request or if this is a statement about what God does. Either way, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray that in the midst of this persecution, they'll have the opportunity to speak. And God responded in verse 31, and they speak with boldness. Now, what's interesting here is what they don't pray for. Isn't that interesting? They don't say, oh, Lord, we pray that you would decapitate Herod. They don't pray, oh Lord, remove Pontius Pilate from office because he is being unkind to us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would eliminate and destroy the Jewish leaders who are persecuting us. They don't, they don't pray that way. They are fixed. They don't pray, oh Lord, would you please restrict a little bit your, this mission that you've given us? It's going to be hard, so if you could just lower the bar a little bit. Um, if you could just change what you say so that we can preach the gospel and only use words if we have to, that would be nice. God, if you could just make this a little bit easier for us so that we don't get persecuted, they don't pray that way either. (laughs) They don't say, Lord, are you sure everybody needs to know about Jesus? They pray, Lord, look what the situation we're in. These are the circumstances that are before us. Oh God, give us boldness to speak more. There's a sense in which 
and we'll see this more in Acts chapter 5 even, they almost welcome this persecution. Why? They welcome it because it's an indication that they're just like Jesus. Jesus was opposed by Herod and Pontius Pilate, and now we're being opposed by Herod and Pontius Pilate and the chief priests. This is awesome. We are followers of Jesus. We are doing what he told us to do. We're experiencing the same things he did, but we're obedient. This is, this is great. What do they want? They want boldness to speak more. They are so focused on this commission that God has given us. Don't let it stop us, they pray, this persecution. There are pastors and uh, Christian leaders in prison Right now, in Iran, they receive a good bit of news. Saeed Abedini is an American, Iranian, who is actually in prison in Iran. A few years ago, uh, we prayed for uh, Yusuf Nadarkhani. He's been released since then. One of the things that we need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted is that they would speak with boldness, that they wouldn't stop. God, keep the Iranian Christians who are afraid Keep them from acting out of fear. Give them boldness. And and make no mistake, of course, that our time for boldness is coming soon, isn't it? Tim Keller was recently interviewed in a forum he participated. uh, It was called Conservative Christianity After the Religious Right. I'm going to quote from him a a little bit. Um, He said, Conservative Christianity in the United States is growing. It's, um, um, it's, it's growing moderately, but the culture itself is becoming more secular. Listen to his analysis. When I say growing moderately, I mean that the number of devout people in the country is increasing as well as the number of secular people. The big change is the erosion in the middle. The devout numbers have actually not gone down that much. It depends on how, how you read them. But basically, they are not in free fall by any means. You don't see so much as a secularization as polarization. And what is disappearing is the middle. See, the middle, uh, people in the middle once um, described themselves or would have said, we're nominal Christians, and they were at least friendly toward the Bible and the church. Um, Listen, it used to be that the devout and the mushy middle, nominal Christians, people that would identify as Christians, people who would come to church sporadically, people who certainly respect the Bible and Christianity, the devout and the mushy middle together was a supermajority who just created a kind of Christianity sort of culture. The mushy middle used to be more identified with the devout. Now it's more identified with the secular. Now, what does that mean? He says... What's happening is that the roof has come off for the devout. The devout had a kind of shelter, an umbrella. You couldn't be all that caustic toward traditional classic Christian teaching and truth. He says, I spoke on Friday morning to the American Bible Society's board. American Bible Society does a lot of polling about the Bible, the use of the Bible, the reading of the Bible, attitude towards the Bible. They said that actually the number of people who are devout Bible readers is not changing that much. What is changing is for the first time in the history of our country, a growing group of people who think uh, there are are a growing group of people who think that the Bible is bad, that it's dangerous, that it's regressive, that it's a bad cultural force. That used to be a very tiny number. 
But now that number is growing, people who think that the Bible is bad, because the middle ground has shifted, so it is more identified with the more secular, the less religious, and it's less identified with the devout. Does that make sense to you? The middle's gone, our cover is gone, as people who think positively about the Bible are identifying more with with the secular, uh, they're becoming less willing to tolerate those who are devout. Recently, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was decommissioned, de-recognized by all 23 public uh, public colleges in the California University system. Because you can't be devout like that and be uh, recognized by a secular university. Same thing has happened at Bowdoin College and Vanderbilt University. All over colleges are, are saying that you, you can't be on campus and recognized by us and hold to your creeds. Creeds are as dangerous as hate speech. The time for boldness is, is coming. I wonder how much boldness you need in your life if you're going to represent Jesus Christ. This church is focused on what they need to do, what Jesus told them to do. We see this pattern in the book of Acts. There's the church meeting in private. Then they interact in public, and they meet in private, and they interact in public. What do they do when they're in private? They pray together, they worship God, and they strategize about how they're going to reach publicly more. What they do when they meet together. There are 5,000 people gathered together at this prayer meeting. That's their people. That's the church. 5,000 people, um, and, and nobody, it seems, is saying as they pray together, um, thinking about Peter and John, oh Lord, don't let that happen to me. It's not what they're praying. They're praying, oh Lord, I'm afraid that's going to happen to me. Don't make my fear cause me to be silent about Jesus. Give me boldness. This is the picture that's hanging on the wall, hanging on the refrigerator. Let's Photoshop our church name and church logo into Acts uh, chapter 4. Let's, let's hang it up. Let's live it out. Now, let me, let me finish briefly by just talking about how to, how to make this a reality. If this is the what, if that's the picture, then how do we get there? Three simple things related to all three of those things that we saw there. First, take the initiative to pray. Take the initiative to pray. In meetings, in, uh, with friends, when, when meeting with one another, when, when parting, it would be normal, it would be okay, it would even be healthy if sometimes in our church there are people praying together around the building. Someone shares a concern with you. Oh, can we pray about that? Can we pray about that right now? I'd love to pray for you right now about that. Take the lead. Again, if you're a husband, if you're a father, do this often. It doesn't need to be long and theological, but stop and, and pray. You can do exactly what this church did. They took God's word and they prayed it. And you read a chapter of scripture. What is here that I can pray about and pray about it? Someone in every group needs to take the lead. So go ahead and do that. Take the initiative and pray. Now, secondly here, cultivate with us a massive view of God. Cultivate with us a massive view of God. I think this should explain why we do some of the things that we do when we gather together. Uh, Not too long ago, uh, somebody left the church, and I was talking to them about why. They were going to another congregation, and and, uh, they said, well, really I'm kind of stuck because I need to decide what I want to do because um, I have to decide what I want to hear on Sunday mornings because... 
Um, the church that I, I'm going to now, they, they talk a lot about practical living and how life is supposed to work. And you, said, he said, um, you're really like more of a Bible study. So I'm trying to decide what I want to hear on Sunday mornings, if I want to hear a practical life-focused message or if I want to hear more of a Bible study. It's an interesting observation. I, um, um, one of the reasons that we study the Bible the way we do um, is because it's God's book. And we search through it systematically because it reveals him systematically. Whether or not I hit the mark uh, often, I don't think there's anything that could be more practical than knowing the God who fills the horizons of your life. This is why we sing the songs that we sing and why we pray like we do, why we read the Bible. We don't have a lot of things in our church that can make us trendy. No one's going to confuse us for being trendy. Uh, but when you come to church, I hope on Sundays that you're, you're comforted and challenged and formed. But I hope most especially you come and you see a massive God. That that's what you look for when you, when you come into the church and you're in the parking lot say, show me the supreme excellence of Jesus Christ and God his Father. As far as I know, there's no better way to cultivate this understanding of the massive view of God than to speak often, regularly, and uh, uh, joyfully and tearfully about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now third, quickly here, strategize for mission. Strategize for mission. How are you involved in mission right now? What are you doing right now that is helping, that is a part of our congregation's effort to fulfill this mission that Jesus gave us to be witnesses? Um, Here's another question to ask you. Who in your life right now uh, are you most concerned about because they're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ? You should be able to answer that question. Who in your life right now are you most concerned about because they're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, Maybe it's somebody, a close relative, a sister, a brother, a son, a mother. And what is it, do you think, that is the biggest obstacle to their belief? You should think about that question. In fact, you should talk to somebody in the church about over lunch, maybe. Who is it in your life that you're most concerned about right now because they're not a follower of Jesus Christ? And what's the biggest obstacle in their life to their belief? Strategizing about the mission. Um, After my hand surgery this winter, uh, I went and had to go to physical therapy for rehab. (laughs) I went to a a, a fine facility here uh, in town, there were people there who were uh, recovering from uh, knee replacement and hip replacement surgeries, and they were moving these massive weights, and I sat in a chair and I went like this over and over again. Well, one of the things I noticed about this particular uh, rehab location, maybe it was the time of day that I went, but the clientele was generally a bit older. There were some uh, high school students recovering from surgery that were there every now and then, but most of the time I was the youngest person there by about 60 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite, <laughs> only 45. So, um, they, but they, they came in and uh, these senior citizens that were there, they were working hard. They were there trying to, um, some of them regain their balance, regain their strength. Um, I, I appreciated that some of them, they were, were, they were pushing hard. Now that experience and the crowd there was quite a bit different from the men and women that I, uh, that at the gym that Kathy and I used to belong to before we had children. Um, 
there were in this gym when we went generally younger adults there. Uh, there were men building muscles. And there were women that were just chewing up miles on the treadmill. They were going for it. <laughs> One of these facilities I felt young and vibrant and healthy, and the other facility not so much. Now, which is the church more like? Is the church more like a physical uh, rehabilitation facility? We're trying to help people get their balance and get back on, on track. Or is it more like training ground for athletes? Now, in some sense, it's supposed to be both. The church is supposed to be both. We help people get back on their feet, but we also send them out strong and fit to conquer new territory. Let's, let's do both. Let's not be off balance. Here's a picture in Acts 4 of what we should, we should look like. Let's get after it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you who reign, you are the sovereign Lord. And we give you thanks. Uh, we serve a Jesus Christ who is not merely a historical figure, but who is alive and seated at your right hand. We give you thanks that he said that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not be able to prevail against it. We thank you that, uh, Lord Jesus, you are the victorious one. And because of our, our faith in you, and our dependence upon you, we are on the winning side. We're going to win someday. Uh, so someday there's not going to be tyrannical governments that lock people up and beat them for naming the name of Christ. Someday there's, there's not going to be uh, universities that, that um, de-recognize Christian organizations. You're the God of history. Someday there's not going to be uh, the fear that we have at, at work and at school of when we talk about Christ being called names or uh, ostracized. Lord, uh, that gives us great hope. And, and in light of your greatness and your supremacy, we pray like these believers that you would give us boldness to fulfill the mission you've called us to. Make prayer for us, we pray, a natural impulse because our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus Christ who is our great reward. It's in his name that we pray these things together saying, Amen.